0: Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. And surprise, surprise, wow, life has a way of turning around on you real quick. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, we were starting to think that "Eh, maybe a little more toilet paper might be in order, and now we're all essentially confined to our homes. I mean, I'm only ever at home anyway, so it's not that big of an inconvenience for me, but I hope that wherever you are, you're healthy and finding ways to preoccupy yourself. Before any of this even started, I was thinking about trying to get an immunologist on the show to talk about diseases in Star Trek, and now I'm thinking, yeah, I absolutely have to do that, so stay tuned for a possible future show about space diseases. This week, however, I wanted to continue a thread from my conversation with David Mack on last week's show. We talked about his DS9 episode, It's Only a Paper Moon, and the sometimes traumatic experiences of Starfleet personnel. I I always wonder, as somebody who's seen a lot of military fiction, uh, but has never served myself, I always wonder how accurate Star Trek is at depicting the lives of a bunch of naval officers. I mean, not the getting kidnapped by a godlike being and forced to play Robin Hood stuff. I'm assuming that doesn't happen very often in the Navy. I'm talking about the ranks, the, the protocol, the day-to-day life of a serviceman or woman. Uh, something that we often forget is that everything that we see in Trek is filtered through the lives and experiences of people who have sworn to lay down their lives to protect the citizens of the Federation. It's like if you watch Hill Street Blues, Uh, Note to self, update references to current millennium. Got it. Uh, If you're watching Blue Bloods, sure, you're dealing with uh, multiple generations of a family who all work in the criminal justice system in some capacity. It's a family drama, but, you know, it's a cop show. It's a procedural. And I think you rarely hear Star Trek described as a Navy show or as military fiction, but that's really what it is. And I wanted to know how much it gets right. So I got in touch with Kenneth Tripp, Ken was one of the hosts of the Standard Orbit podcast, and he's currently the host of General Quarters, a podcast about veterans in their own words. Ken served for 25 years in the U.S. Navy, and held the rank of Senior Chief Petty Officer. Hey, just like Chief O'Brien. As a high-ranking NCO with a long period of service, Ken has a unique and comprehensive perspective on military service and how it's presented in Star Trek. So, please enjoy our talk. I had a lot of fun talking with Ken. And that's it for now. Picard Season 1 will be complete in the books by the time you hear this, so check out our Discoverage podcast for Picard recaps and discussion. You can find that in our usual show feed. We'll be back next week with more enterprising individuals. Stay home, but stay active and healthy. Wash them hands. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Kenneth Tripp. Ken is a Senior Vice President of Global Operations and Logistics for Zimmer Biomet. He's also a 25-year veteran of the United States Navy, having achieved the rank of Senior Chief Petty Officer. He's the co-host of Standard Orbit, a Trek FM podcast about Star Trek, the original series, and the creator and host of General Quarters, a Warriors and Warships podcast on the United Federation of Podcast Network. Ken, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. And, me too. Uh, like I said, I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, going yeah. to be fun.
0: It's great to have you. Uh, I always ask new guests to the show how they first became Star Trek fans. When did you first discover Star Trek?
1: Well, I've been around a while. And (laughs) uh, for me, (laughs) I guess for me, you know, I I grew up in the 70s uh, and was somewhat familiar with the show. But for me, it was uh, seeing Star Trek, the motion picture. I think I was 12 or 13 years old. I thought it was... uh, uh, which is a rarity among Star Trek fans. I thought it was one of the most uh, incredible movies ever made. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it it pulled me in hard. And then I started really watching the show and, um, yeah, and became a, a big Star Trek fan from that point on. So that's, that's where it started. And, you know, I've had my ebbs and flows in terms of, um, you know, watching all the different series and shows as life has gone on. But, uh, it's, it's always something you, it's like coming back to your, 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 your hometown every, Every so often, I, I really enjoy it and all the different incarnations. You know,
0: yeah, I mean, it's funny. Uh, you talking about the motion picture? Like, I mean, we didn't know what was coming, uh, but definitely at that time, that, you know, that was a huge, ambitious picture. And uh, people say, you know, oh, it's one of the worst Star Trek films, but it's got a lot of great properties to it.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's had a bit of a renaissance, I think. Uh, yeah, it, you know, they had the the fortieth fortieth show, anniversary showing and. I brought some folks to it that hadn't seen it or whatnot. And, um, it was, it was the mixed the reviews coming out of it were kind of mixed, especially for a younger crowd. But (laughs) you know, I, I think that's, that that's real true. Star Trek. I, I think that, uh, I know it was slow when I get that but um yeah. just from being a very cerebral and and I, and what I thought was a damn clever plot you know took us yeah. a while to get there but yeah, well, pretty clever
0: <laughs> yeah and of course just over the course of TOS films uh what we thought of Star Trek being uh changed a lot from the motion picture to uh number 6 or generations
1: Absolutely it did yeah yeah everything evolves but yeah. I never thought that they got to that level of um You know, a big, uh, I don't know what the right word was, you know, um, cinema blockbuster type of, it it never had the feel of, you know, being inexpensive or or whatnot. I thought the movies became like the TV shows. They were well done, but uh, they certainly didn't put the money and effort and time, uh, but they were all, you know, very effective nonetheless. Yeah.
0: Uh, You've been one of the hosts of Standard Orbit podcast on Trek FM for the last few years. And is it true that Standard Orbit is retiring from active duty for the near future? Uh, Boy,
1: I hope not. Uh, I've retired. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I I did the show for four years, uh, Zach and and myself, and I was on a little bit before him. Loved doing the show. Uh, Back in this this past summer, somewhere around September or August uh, time frame, both Zach and I were really struggling to come up with new topics. Uh, to talk about t o s you know you, you boy we we put in over two hundred different episodes there and we <laughs> yeah. we, put, we had a pretty good run it's well trodden ground and yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 you know so I mean the show itself had oh, we 're finishing up this this monday actually'll be number three hundred it 'll be wow. our our finale uh that, that'll be coming out but it it's uh it 's one of those things where when we reached out to the head of the network, what our plan was we literally gave you know, practically six months notice to say, okay, you know, we're going to stop at 300 and, um, you know, and turn it over to another crew and we would love to do other things on the network. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of went quiet. I don't, I don't know if there's been a lot of activity or if the focus is more on the new shows or whatnot, but at any rate, the the plan is for it not to to stay in hiatus very long. One of the co-hosts Haley Stoddard, she's committed. And, uh, you know, we've been actively looking for, Uh, co-host to work with her and whatnot. But, you know, right now, like I said, I think the excitement over Star Trek Picard and other things have got the the priority of the network. So I completely understand that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, congratulations on such an accomplishment, though, getting to 300 episodes. Was there any, um, just looking at the series TOS in such detail, were there any surprising insights for you, a longtime fan of the show that you that you realized?
1: Meaning over the course of the podcast, were yeah. there certain things that kind of popped up? Yeah. yeah. You know, that was ever constant to me, just because you, I, th- I think it was having a co-host and then a second co-host that came on board that was a lot younger. Yeah, okay. You know, they had a very different view of things. Yeah, And so it made me think differently. You know, I think that... Uh, maybe just being part of the old guard and being stubborn, you tend to defend things that maybe you shouldn't, or you highlight (laughs) things that that they probably didn't catch. So I think along the way, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of things from that show that I really liked. And I think a lot of it came down to um, different approaches to problem solving. Yeah. The, um, the camaraderie uh, for, for that show was unique. And when you compare it against, let's say the next generation or whatnot,
2: yeah. you realize
1: yeah. there's a lot of roads to Rome as far as leadership and styles and being sure. successful. Yeah. And I think that helped me along the way as uh, you know, I grew up in both the military and the business world. You, 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 you have to change your style to fit the situation. And I think that uh, in TOS uh their problem solving abilities were, were pretty clever and and the big three in, in their approaches always um they always seemed to change to fit. And I think that was uh, a big learning for me. You know, and then as you watch the new shows you looked at the different approaches they had, you know, less less military, more collaborative. Um, you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Just just sure. just different different approaches as things evolve.
0: Yeah, it was so rare on the original series for Kirk to get everybody into the the discussion room or the briefing room and talk to everybody. It was almost always just the big 3. And now on TNG and uh and shows like Voyager, uh the captain is always getting everybody together and saying, "Okay, what do we think about this problem here?"
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's um, the evolution that has has occurred for how leadership and and how things run, even even in the service. I I, I see a very similar approach, and um, but you know at the end of the day, the captain's still the captain, and what he or she says goes when sure. when it's when it's time to uh, when it's time to commit. Yeah. So you 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 have folks that have um, maybe mature and experienced crew members, and then you have others where they're younger and uh, you can learn equally from both it's a it's a it it, it is a win- winning strategy it truly is
0: yeah that's great the bridging that sort of generational gap and the fact that the franchise has been around for over 50 years now i mean that would it's just n- necessary you know for uh for it to continue to appeal to so many people
1: it it is and um i and i think the influx which none of the shows i think have have really had an opportunity yet you know that the cast remain the same for the most part Mm. uh, across the across all the series so far Uh, the newer ones they're they're changing a little bit but one of the elements that uh, i think is fascinating when it comes to leadership and success if you look at um, uh, winning organizations whether it be business or in sports or even in the military for that matter uh, and you and you look at the statistics Crews that have been around for a long time that are really mature, they they have a certain level of success. But when you mix in people that are brand new into the organization and and you pull them into spots, they actually get better uh, and they perform better. And it's it's one of those things where um, change is good and new lines of thinking is good, diversity of thought is good. And uh, it's one of the elements that will be interesting to see if that catches on with Star Trek because I think uh, in many ways – you know, the, the world's kind of caught up to Star Trek, and now I think Star Trek needs to kind of catch up with the world yeah. in terms of uh, those formulaic approaches to winning.
0: Well, you're not just a Star Trek expert and fan. You served in the Navy for 25 years. Can you tell us more about your service? Sure,
1: sure. I uh, I enlisted right out of high school. I uh, was 17 years old. Hmm. I didn't have uh, the money I needed for college. Uh, that was one thing. Oh, sure. But because of my, my fandom of Star Trek, I loved... Um, everything about ships and the Navy and, and all that <laughs> stuff. I, it was a, a, definitely a big piece of it. I've always been a fan of history and studied um, specifically like World War II and the Pacific War and um, just just the, uh, the incredible talents that, that uh, were involved in, in winning that. And, and Star Trek, like I said, played a big part of that. I think that's why I really like Star Trek The Motion Picture because that ship was the most functional uh-huh. Every person knew their role, had a role, knew how to do their role. And uh-huh. I really liked that that approach. It was, uh, you know, people just didn't shift from station to station. It was kind of different. But anyway, yeah. I, uh, I enlisted uh, and I went into uh, cryptology. Uh, that was uh, where I went to a school down in Pensacola, Florida, after boot camp. And I was in operation. So we were encoding, decoding, and making sure we were getting secure message traffic back and forth to NSA. I worked at NSA for a while. And then um got out, uh, went to school. And my goal was to uh to go back in the Navy full time when I graduated from high school and I always wanted to command ships. That was that was my ultimate goal. And I had a problem. I was colorblind and um <laughs> that didn't allow you to be a uh, surface warfare officer. It okay. didn't allow you to be an unrestricted line officer. So oh. then I was kinda of stuck. Okay. Yeah. So I uh yeah, I, I was like, Okay, can't do that. I wound up staying in the reserves. Uh, went into business and uh you know been steadily climbing the corporate ladder while simultaneously staying in the navy reserve and um Then the gulf War came, and there were uh, marines assigned to our unit that were deployed for uh for the for the gulf War okay but none of the uh the sailors were so mm-hmm. I was ticked off about that um and i i realized okay am i am I doing something that 's really making a difference for me i i, I I then changed, uh, my rates and my job and, um, I wanted to be in a, a combat unit. And mm. so I, I switched out, changed rates and went into, um, what they call naval coastal warfare, okay. which is small boats. So if you've ever seen, uh, I'm trying to think like, uh, uh apocalypse now, you sure. know, the river boats and yeah. all that type of stuff. Right. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I wound up doing. And, um, uh, it wasn't long after the cold got hit in Aden that our unit started to get recalled. And then after nine 11, uh, my unit was recalled about, um, about one month after that, uh, served for six months, uh, overseas, I'm sorry, for a year overseas. Then when we came back, um, was back for a couple of years and then, uh, we were, we were redeployed back in 2004 for another year. And, um, uh, came back from that. Was working down in uh, Little Creek, Virginia area as a command senior chief down there for Naval Coastal Warfare Squadron 25, and then uh, as as my business career started to um, started to accelerate and started getting higher and higher in in our company. Then. Um, I realized I I couldn't keep going. I, mm-hmm. I decided twenty five was enough. I had made it to senior chief. There was only one more rank to go, that was master chief. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I had a shot at it, but I uh, I pulled the plug at twenty five, and uh, and I think it's worked out well because now um, you know on on the business side of things, uh, you know it, it's had a pretty good run, and uh, I'm I'm pretty happy where I'm at with the company now. So yeah, it was a it was it was a great experience though. I I feel like I got a lot more out of the Navy than I gave to the Navy, that's for sure. And yes. uh, it is set up, uh, you know, for, for, for a pretty good, uh, for a pretty good run. I've, I've uh, been very, very happy. I, I miss it though. That's the only thing oh, okay. when you get out <laughs> yeah. after a few years, you start getting itchy and, uh, <laughs> at, uh, you know, you know what it's like being a guy too. At at 53, you you think you could do what you could do oh, at yeah, 18 sure. and you can't, but you still think you can. You
0: know, right. But, right. Uh... <laughs> that's the leading cause of injury in older men is thinking that they're younger men. Uh that is true. Yes. <laughs> well, that's so that's that's a that's an amazing accomplishment and it's it's so fascinating that uh your love of Star Trek sort of uh propelled you into that. And of course, uh I'm sure, you know, I'm sure viewers know that um, Star Trek and specifically Starfleet is based on the naval traditions of of Earth's navies. Um, We'll get into detail in in a second, but just as an overview, how well, in your opinion, does Star Trek approximate the the experience in the world of the military?
1: It does okay. It's um, you know the the traditions that you see aboard ship, uh, for the most part, it Mm -hmm. carries them accurately. Uh, you know, the Navy is unique amongst the armed services. Uh, you know, your officers, you will always refer to as Mr. Uh, on the bridge and so forth versus their rank. You can call them by their rank or you can call them Mr. That's fine. Sure. Uh, but, you know, they, they capture that well. Uh, Hierarchy is pretty accurate. I would say the biggest myth in Star Trek uh, is the fact that, you know, five or six officers do the job of what, you know, dozens of mostly enlisted people would do normally, <laughs> right? Yeah, and um, you know, and and I get it. I mean, <laughs> it's a TV show where you have, you know, uh, uh, I guess lately, you know, six, seven main characters, and they all have to have something to do. But I would say if it falls down anywhere, it's uh, it's way too officer heavy. Uh, everybody seems, or the vast majority of everybody on the ship, seems to be an officer versus. You know, they would only account for maybe 20%, maybe 15% uh, Uh, on a a real naval vessel. Yeah,
0: Yeah. even like the minor characters, like the minor rank-and-file characters are all ensigns or or junior-grade lieutenants, it seems like, on the shows. But like Chekhov isn't uh, isn't plunging toilets. I mean, there's got to be enlisted personnel (laughs) who are doing the day-to-day work on the ship.
1: Well, yeah, but you know, a lot of times
0: too, your your senior your senior enlisted would actually um, perform a
1: lot of the missions. You know, it, mm. it wouldn't be like a group of um, senior officers running down or <laughs> right. you, you know, yeah. you know, you think of Star Trek Five. It's like, oh, let's get the hostages out, right? Okay, let's bring the the oldest, slowest guys in the, on, the, <laughs> on the ship and let's go. Right.
2: Um,
1: it's just it's just a little different that way. It's it's fun, um, but I think you know it it is. Um, uh, the Navy has always been very hierarchical. It's been more traditional than the other services. And in many ways, it's kind of hurt, I think, um, uh, uh, with the Navy's evolution. Uh, a lot of that's changed in the last oh, 20 years or so where, you know, it used to be officers and men. You've heard that on Star Trek many times. You've, you've seen it throughout history, you know, where they're, where they're kind of a level above. Uh, And I would say it started to change a lot in the late 90s where it was no longer officers and men, sailors were sailors, you know, like Mm. Marines were Marines, like soldiers were soldiers and things started to evolve. Star Trek has not evolved, but because it's mostly officer centric, I guess it really doesn't need to.
0: Yeah, Um, I think the TOS films did a lot to recenter the franchise on um, the trappings of military tradition uh, and and uh, and fiction, um, specifically uh, Star Trek's two and six, which were written by Nicholas Meyer, and I think it's interesting that like Nicholas Meyer was he's not somebody who served in the military, I don't think, but I had read that he had based the naval aspects of the films on the Horatio Hornblower novels, not knowing that when Gene Roddenberry was creating the original series, he was doing the same thing. He had that in mind.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so it did it did come back like i said i think that uh, if you watch the motion picture it's probably um as accurate as you're going to see on a ship you know i mean and they were they were giving so many fundamental orders in that movie about the operations of the ship which mm-hmm didn't really advance the plot but if you're a guy or a person that really likes to see how things operate sure which you know doesn't do a lot for entertaining folks but for me it did you
2: know
1: and then in the next movies uh, you know the the uniforms looked uh, more military let's say and the protocols were there but then the functionality all kind of came away you know much more blinking <laughs> yeah. lights and people moving all around and yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. really clear who did what but yeah. it was yeah, I, I do agree with you, yes. I've heard him say both the Navy and the Coast Guard in space, so to speak. Yeah, yes. right,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, this is maybe the wrong show, but are you a, a Battlestar Galactica fan? Huge,
1: yes, uh, especially the new one. I um, Can, I think it's one of the best um, series ever made with yeah. the new Battlestar Galactica. Can yes. you
0: verify the veracity of uh, the depiction of the military in that show?
1: Far more accurate than Star Trek. Uh, yeah. The rank structures are a little bit, um, are a little bit back and forth. But when you consider that the, um, the, the, Navy and the Marines are under one department, which they are, yeah. and Marines serve on Navy vessels, then you could have, um, you know, colonels and majors intertwined with, uh, commanders and ensigns or whatever. It, it's, it's the same, same pay grade and same authority, just mm-hmm. different titles. But okay. I thought Battlestar Galactica probably, um, uh, was much more accurate as far as as the structure and, and having that good mix of officer and enlisted and what people do. I think was uh, yeah, yeah it was very well done yeah
0: yeah mm-hmm. and, and you don't have a Adama uh, you know beaming down to the planet or whatever when there's a problem they uh, they sort of push that off onto characters like Starbuck who is a uh, a pilot you know is uh, operates a yeah. Viper but then some like they have a hostage situation and suddenly she's a commando so. There's a little bit of moving around in roles, it seems, there, too.
1: Yeah, a, a little bit. But, the, you know, they did have Marines, which that's, I thought yeah, that's was true. interesting. Yeah. And uh, and the folks getting, you know, because the, um, you know, the, the air arm of the Navy, especially with carriers, uh, you know, a lot of them are the tip of the spear. So, you know, the, the pilots, which are officers, they are the ones doing the actual fighting. And that's what makes it unique, I think. Mm. But uh, I think, that, yeah, they they really did capture everything in that series, I thought, really, really well. They had that right mix, um, and I thought it was interesting too with the ship being decommissioned, how the discipline had kind of fallen down. Yeah, yeah. Adama being very aware of it and tolerating stuff because he was on the way out or retiring or whatnot. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it was it was pretty quick how they all had to, to snap back into the game, you know.
0: Yeah, I know that in the world of Star Trek and Starfleet, uh, there are different classes of ships who nominally have a function or or a particular set of functions that they can accomplish. But with the variability and the adaptability of Starfleet technology, and also just we're spoiled for choice as um, viewers because we're seeing, like, the best ships. You know, the Enterprise is is the galaxy class, the flagship. We don't really get an idea of what the roles of Starfleet ships are. It seems like they do everything. Uh, You know, the Enterprise-D could be fighting in a war, it could be ferrying uh, supplies, it could be doing a diplomatic mission from week to week. And I I have to wonder how that contrasts with the Navy, where there are ships with very specific functions uh, in in, uh, the theater of war.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And um, when you think about it, uh, what you said is, is absolutely true. And I think there are certain types of ships uh, that are used to influence and, uh, are, and are used for, for diplomacy and rescue missions and things along those lines. Right. If you think about right. a capital ship like an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. uh, being able to get to any spot quickly uh, and as well as hold diplomatic functions, uh, they do it. They're they're massive. that's for sure (laughs) yeah uh like you know like the enterprise d and and so forth but you know in a time of peace which is you know it's amazing when i think about how long um we've been in kind of a quasi war for for 20 years in the u.s it's 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 just remarkable but prior to that time uh you know u.s uh, ships they make port-a-call visits all the time to to different countries they show the flag Uh, They send the crews out there to do various charitable missions, uh, you know, uh, help a town revitalize, provide medical care, all the same things that you would kind of see in Star Trek. Uh, But but you're right. I would say that um, the multipurpose nature of starships, uh, at least the big ones like we see with Enterprise, uh, aligns itself well to, let's say, a carrier or a um, maybe an amphibious ship you know where they have both aircraft and marines and they could you know they're, they're pretty much um able to function and do various missions where uh the smaller ships in the fleet could be more anti-submarine warfare, anti-air warfare, okay, uh, mine sure. sweeping, littoral yeah. combat. Yeah, so it it does the smaller they go the more specific they are. They might have multiple capabilities, but their missions, you know, could be just to uh, protect the fleet or to, um, you know, to get in shallow waters and do different things. But you're right. It's, uh, uh, there isn't something that quite marries up to what all the different things, let's say, the Enterprise-D did. Yeah. That, that's, yeah, that was an incredible ship it's, for what, you, well, for what yeah. you thought it was designed. Yeah, yeah it
0: certainly was. Uh, and of course, you know, in the future of Trek, humanity has solved many of its own social problems. But as we go into space, we find that doesn't necessarily translate to other species being as friendly and well-behaved as Federation citizens are. Um, But, you know, so, of course, Starfleet is called upon to defend the citizens of the Federation. But at the same time, Starfleet is you know, an exploratory organization and an aid organization. uh, And many scientists are in its ranks. Every captain is a diplomatic representative of the Federation to other races. It's a lot of hats for a military organization to wear. And you used the example before of in peacetime, the military serving other functions rather than defense. Can you think of any other real life examples of a military or a national force that has as many functions as Starfleet does?
1: Uh, not off the top of my head. You know, the, the, um, if, if you think about it going, it's funny, you have to look further back to see how it would more align with Starfleet. So if you look at the British fleet, for example, or any of the European navies a few hundred years back, uh, they were explorers, Mm uh, they Mm -hmm. were on commissioned warships and they were exploring. I mean, Darwin was on the HMS Beagle. I mean, this (laughs) is not, um, it's really not that, that unique from a historical point of view. I think it's, it's changed a bit but um if you look at when um after world war 2 for example they converted a bunch of um you know older submarines or whatever to go around and map the um, the various magnetic poles uh and poles uh, across the globe right and yeah. they were they had no weapons or anything but it was it was military and they, and they were doing um you know performing scientific missions and they still do i, I think that uh, when you have um NOAA and other uh, and other agencies now, uh, the military probably doesn't do it as much, but they do work closely together. And I think, you know, when you're um, uh, when you're when you're still kind of in that 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 combat mode. Uh, the mind shift doesn't change. So you always have to be ready for defense. That's your number one mission. Right. Um, but they can do a lot of things. And, uh, I think that's what makes the Navy so important, Yeah. Uh, especially in peacetime because it's been since world war two, then we've actually had a surface engagement if you think about it. So yeah. it's,
2: uh, yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's very, it, the world is evolving and so is the service. But I, I think, uh, you know, when it comes to space, um, and I and I see where where it would be going. I mean, you, you would be thinking much more exploration than you would military. Yeah. I mean, dual hatted for sure, but the shift would definitely focus on exploration over over the military missions. I believe.
0: Yeah, that's a great uh, example of of connecting back to the days of you know the, the Royal Navy, and I think that was definitely intended. I mean, presumably there's an entire Federation diplomatic corps. There's a science establishment that does the extended work of science and diplomacy, but the starships are like the tip of the sphere for uh, intergalactic relations. You know, week to week, Captain Kirk might be supplying colonists, he's stopping a war, he's resolving trade disputes. He has to kind of do it all.
1: That's right, and um, you know, they they put a lot more, let's say, on the captain of a ship to have this skill set uh, than mm-hmm. than you would uh, in today's world. Uh, I do think that um, you know you do have a lot of military attachés who will go to embassies and they'll work on their. Uh, their diplomacy and whatnot, but uh, I use that Captain Kirk line all the time. I'm not a diplomat; I'm a soldier. I use it in my office all the time <laughs> because I can't play politics. I suck at it, but I, uh, I, I, you know, and that's probably why I'm in operations because it's our job to get things done. I'm not here to to have a have a pleasant conversation with somebody on sure. and debating folks. Sure. You know, we, we we have to we have to keep moving forward. But yes. yeah, it's they definitely have a unique skill set, and um, you know, you you think about the the famous explorers in history. Um, You know, some of them were known uh, for being great, great captains and, and, um, and, and great military ability. And then others, you know, they were just known as great explorers. And that was their key focus.
0: Yeah. The daily routine of Starfleet officers confuses me a little. I, I'm sure in their future, they've got all kinds of automation and technology that made their lives easier. And we, I think we speculated on many off-screen personnel who are getting things done. But they, they sure play a lot of darts. And they're hanging out in the holodeck a lot. They do.
2: <laughs> and, they're always, <laughs> and they're always rehearsing
0: for plays and things like that i would i mean it'd be amazing if in the future uh military personnel would have that that free time to develop themselves still but yeah they're 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 hanging out in 10 forward quite a bit
1: yeah well you still can't drink on a Navy ship uh to that, say, alcohol yeah. anyway yeah. Uh, they they might have a, yeah, a certain occasion here and there but yeah it it is very different i do think though the development and the training aspect of it is is real i mean you're you're never bored. You, 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 you might not have the most exciting jobs on a ship. Like you say, somebody has to uh, clean the bilges and, mm. and get the get the meals ready and so forth. But for others, uh, you know, there, there is enough time for them, especially with the technology we have uh, for people to further their education and take online courses. You know, they, they do try to work things through. So especially if it's, uh, you know, if, if they're deployed for eight months or more, which is very common on a ship uh you've got to you've got to be able to provide things to allow people to grow and and expand um i've never seen things like plays and so forth or uh you know that type of stuff but there are bands on ships oh sure yeah uh, you know, there yeah. are pe- oh yeah there there's and, and not just assigned navy bands i mean groups of people who are musicians they will get together and they you know it's it's just interesting there's a lot of people that have a lot of common um hobbies that you'll see will get together as groups on ships and they'll will form and you know, they'll they'll put on different things for folks. So there are little bits and trinkets that you see uh, in, in Star Trek that uh, are accurate, I think, amongst even today's fleet. But it's it certainly isn't um yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of people rehearsing Shakespeare and things along those lines. Um, you
2: never know. <laughs> you know,
1: are playing music loud enough so that the uh, the windows are rocking. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's right, uh, right. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot that happens out to sea. That's for sure, more than than you'd think, but but not to that extent.
0: Yeah. Well, if the captain wants to play his music loud, I think that he's allowed to do that.
1: <laughs> he's probably the one person, or she is. Yeah, absolutely. Sure.
0: Uh, Starfleet has a list of general orders for their organization. I don't think they've ever confirmed what they all are, which is probably smart for a TV show to give yourself some wiggle room in the rules. But viewers are probably familiar with General Order 1 or the Prime Directive or maybe General Order 7, which forbids any vessel from visiting the planet Talos 4, which is a very specific thing to put in your big list of commandments. Uh, But we never really really see a full Starfleet code of military justice, uh, assuming there is one on the show.
1: I, I could have sworn on some, one of the episodes there that they called it that. Okay. Uh, the Uniform Pro okay. of Starfleet Regulations. I, I thought I remember hearing something. So they, they do align with that, I think, a bit. I think in, the, in, in court martial, perhaps, and then even okay. uh, in Measure of a Man, they kind of hint. Uh, that there is, you know, uh, I mean, there's two things in the, the, you know, there's naval regulations, um, hundreds and hundreds. um, And and anybody says that they've memorized them all, I'd call them out because that's why we have attorneys. Uh, And then you have the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which you pretty much um, can learn, uh, whatever it is now. I don't know if it's expanded beyond um, 32 different articles or whatnot, Mm. that, that really define your behavior. Uh, and and how you're supposed to operate okay. uh, you, you know in any military setting, so that's it goes beyond it's it's all services, not just navy so they you you're right the um <laughs> the order the the general orders that they have out there or Starfleet regulations, I think Starfleet regulations and naval regulations are probably pretty similar
0: yeah, probably <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine I don't think that we ever see any Starfleet member uh, take an oath of enlistment or office. Uh, like real-world uh, military personnel, uh, which I think is surprising because I'd have to imagine there is one. And I think, you know, it's very important. Starfleet is a military organization, but it's got, uh, as the Federation does, such aspirational uh, scientific and diplomatic ideals. Like, I would like to hear what the um, the oath of office would be for a Starfleet uh, officer.
1: Yeah, so would I. It's interesting. You know, but they, they are fully commissioned,
0: mm-hmm, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so in order to be commissioned... Um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. I, you know, you see it all the time. Well, you know, I'll resign or whatnot. Yeah. Just, you know, it's, it's funny on a, um, on an identification card for any commissioned officer, uh, in the U S military, uh, the expiration date says indefinite. Okay. So it's, uh, you know, that yes, you can be, you can be kicked out, you sure. know, and all of that stuff and you have your time. Uh, but you technically do have to resign it. So, sure. I mean, you are by, um, by rule, by law. A a direct representative of the United States government, and I'm sure it's the same for the Federation. And, you know, obviously they tout the values of Starfleet officers, um, maybe above and beyond. I think sometimes I, you know, sometimes I I shake my head, you know, um, you know, Starfleet officers never lie. No, of course not. Um, (laughs) Right. You know, at least at times it was very idealistic, which is which is fine. But, uh, you know, it is special. I mean, getting a commission in the service and representing that way, whatever your organization is, it is very special. It is very meaningful. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure there are. They could come up with an oath. I mean, we, we do know what the captain's oath is now, right? Thanks to uh, the JJ films, which yeah. we didn't know that was the captain's oath. But essentially, um, I think that that beginning uh, dialogue or monologue uh, pretty much is their, their oath and their mission, right? Seek uh, out new life I yeah. and all that stuff. It seems to, seems to be it. I, I would think there'd be a little bit more, but um,
0: maybe, maybe that's where they're at. I would agree with that. And that's, of course, for the officers. Uh, we do, however, have one shining example of a non-commissioned character in the Trek franchise, and that is Senior Chief Petty Officer Miles O'Brien. And I don't know if we ever get a full dossier on O'Brien's career. Um, I think the facts changed a little, and the character changed as they were developing him. But I believe we're told in a DS9 episode that he enlisted at 17 in Starfleet and went to engineering school.
1: Right, right. That's what I understand as well. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Um yeah, he, he's had a pretty interesting career. Um, he's, uh, you know, it's it's funny uh, on a navy ship. You'll always hear the term, you know, chiefs and officers, officers and chiefs. Mm. Uh, when there's meetings and so forth, most of the time the chiefs are involved. Um, there's there's two separate sections of a ship. So there's the wardroom where the officers eat. There's the chief's mess where the chiefs meet and gather. And then there's uh, the galley uh, where the crew goes. Uh, so there's there's those three different hierarchies, on, um, and it, it doesn't matter whether it's a ship or a navy base or whatnot. That that's how it works. Okay. Uh, and and uh, what's different about a navy chief versus, let's say, a senior non commissioned officer um, in in the other services is that by by rule and by creed, a navy chief's job is to train junior sailors and junior officers. Mm-hmm. That is their job. Mm-hmm. So it's uh it's a pretty cool and very unique position in any military, uh, being a chief. So on a, on a ship, a starship, uh, once you hit chief, I think it's very similar to, to the Navy, uh, everything kind of changes, um, your your uniform changes, your responsibilities change. Hmm. Uh, and you know, it's not uncommon for, you know, chiefs to be in what would might be a a traditional officer role, depending on the size of the ship. Hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, and they're and they're used flexibly uh, across the board. So, you know, I think my, uh, O'Brien, when he went to, to Deep Space Nine, was chief of operations. Um, oh. He was uh, operations officer aboard a ship, right, uh, for a while too, as we found out. So he he did bounce around quite a bit. Yeah. And um, you know, it, it, but he, as you could see, he had uh, a a lot of um, respect was given to him uh, because obtaining that rank. Uh, is considered to be very difficult yeah. and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty special. So it's, uh, it, they, they at least gave him, I think the reverence due uh, for, for an enlisted chief. Uh, they, they don't do that too much often other in other places. Yeah. Know? So, but, um, yeah, I, I, I loved his character and, um, and we used to, I, I my best friend in the Navy was was Senior Chief O'Brien, so we, we always kind of got a kick out of that.
0: Too, wow. <laughs> it, it must have seemed like kind of a crap assignment, perhaps, at the start of TS9. I mean, he's going from the flagship, he's, he's, he's moving out and, you know, looking for opportunities, and he ends up uh, in the boondocks, like in the middle of nowhere on this station, which, of course, will become very important. But at the time, it must have felt like, oh, boy, I'm kind of starting all over again.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny, you don't have, it, one thing about Star Trek that is unique is, um, you know, they seem to be assigned to a ship for an awfully long time. Yes. Now, I think, you yes. know, obviously, space travel and whatnot, it's not easy to, to rotate people and crews and things like that if you're, if you 're on long missions, which i I completely understand, yeah, uh, but everybody you know seems to have to cycle through a good duty station and one that you wouldn't necessarily want because otherwise nobody would go to the <laughs> to the lousy stations and sure you know uh that that 's just the the way it works uh so so you do rotate, but uh you know you can put your thumbprint on any organization uh, w- once you get there, and I thought that his character developed really nicely from. Kind of this ancillary character in the background on, on the Enterprise, mm-hmm. uh, which, which his role expanded, you know, as the, as the show continued, but sure. uh, was really happy to see where that role and how it developed, you know, because that's, that's what a chief is supposed to be, is um, a pretty solid leader, but uh, probably your, your top technical experts on, on any vessel or command
0: yeah, he certainly fills that role too. And you've got somebody like uh, Jordy LaForge on the Enterprise who you know starts off steering the ship as a uh, as junior grade lieutenant, but is clearly aspirational and clearly very uh, capable. and I don't even remember if it was just a random like rotating list of our cast of uh, chief engineers until he was finally uh, promoted into the role. I'd have to imagine that um, your opportunities for advancement are, are limited by the availability availability of positions.
1: Uh, well, the way it works is uh, when, when you go to a ship uh, as a as a junior officer, uh, and you're an unrestricted line officer, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, a person that would be considered in, in a leadership or command role. So unrestricted line means, you know, that one day you could, could be a captain of a ship. Okay. A restricted line officer is a doctor or a dedicated supply corps officer or um, a counselor or something along sure. those lines. So they... They are not, uh, nor are they trained, um, to take command of ships or to run ships. They are departmental experts, right? That's where they play. So if it's medicine, that's where you play. If you're a supply corps officer, that, that's where you work.
2: Sure. But for
1: a junior officer that's coming in that's unrestricted line, uh, they have to rotate uh, amongst the ship uh, in different positions. You have to learn navigation. You have to learn weapons. You have to learn engineering. You have to learn communications. You have to learn... Uh, combat information and radar officer, all those different things. So that you, you rotate um, across all those different functions of the ship over, you know, a few years. And you get, quote unquote, qualified to run those watches. Um, it is very rare for the captain of the ship, to be honest with you, to be on the bridge giving all the orders. Um, the officer of the day, the officer of the deck. Uh, is the officer that's in charge you know he gets the orders from the captain and he makes sure that the functions of the ships are going the xo is kind of the head disciplinarian and makes sure that everything is running well and then the captain is the ultimate decision maker but once all these officers and i'm sorry i go on these tangents but once (laughs) these young officers go through all these different departments they then go up before a board um, where they're tested on their capabilities Uh, once they pass that board they become officially what they call surface warfare officers, and they wear a, um, a designator on their uniform, uh, you know, uh, it's on the left side, you know, uh, of the breast there above their ribbons and whatnot. Sure. And that's why in the Navy, it is so easy to tell what everybody does, because if you're an expert in some kind of warfare, um, you wear that pin above your ribbons, and you know exactly what that officer is doing. Okay. Um, on a so, if you're if you're an unrestricted line officer, you know you're you could be a pilot, you could be a, a, a ship driver, you could be a submarine uh, officer, or whatnot. You can go to any one of those disciplines, but once you earn that capability, you earn that um, that that um, warfare pin, as okay. they call
0: it. Okay. I have to wonder if the, the lack of insignia on Starfleet uniforms uh, ever causes confusion, because you have to imagine how big the crew of like a, a Galaxy class is. For instance, like would you even uh, know who's doing what uh, if you aren't familiar, or you don't, you know, you haven't met that officer, or have only seen him once or twice.
1: Yeah, I, I I imagine it would. I, I do understand the color coding, but I, I I just get more confused every season, every new show, <laughs> every incarnation. Everybody's
0: in pajamas. And yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and the idea of it, though, is that is very, very um, traditional. If you, um, I don't know if you've ever seen operations on the flight deck of a carrier, or if you've YouTube it or seen it or whatnot. Sure. But everybody on the flight deck wears a unique color. Yeah. So everybody, because it's the most dangerous environment on the place to work. Uh, everybody has to be in their station, know what their station is, and the the air boss who's watching all these operations go on. Um, you know that that three quarter of an acre flight deck down there. Right. Uh, you could see instantly if somebody's not where they're supposed to be, if they're if they're not in a colored shirt, and they're getting too close to a plane or whatnot, and they shouldn't be there. Then it's easily detectable. But um, yeah, you, you know, I believe uh, red is is ordnance. Um, you know, blue could be fuel. I'm probably getting all the colors wrong. I was Good. never in Airedale. But they sure. have, you know, you can tell just by looking at it. White, I believe, is the is the person who launches the planes. Everybody has that role and function, so it makes it very, very simple. Okay. Um, but I don't know how they figure it out on Starfleet, to be honest. <laughs> I, um, <Yeah. laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, it, you know, blue could be a, a, an unrestricted officer like uh, Spock. You know, he's science, but yet he could command the ship. Right. Uh, but uh, you'd never you'd never have a doctor, for example, commanding a ship uh, like they do now or Counselor Troy going, you know, just because she was attaining the rank of commander. Um, that episode, I, I forget the the one in TNG I, I, when um, when the ship was. Um, di-
2: the disaster? It was a
1: disaster. That's what it yeah. was. Right. You had Ensign Roe and the chief and arguing and all that stuff. Uh, of troy would not have been in charge it would have been ensign Rowe, and uh leaning heavily on the chief's advice if that was real world sure
0: okay interesting and then so later on when she after that experience she decides to get you know her sort of bridge certification and uh and get try to get a promotion to commander um i know it's like star trek but is that sort of realistic could an officer do something like that
1: they, they could young enough in their career, you could switch sure. you know if you were a um, if you went through the supply corps and you know you you went through all that training and accounting and logistics and supply chain and all that, and you decide you want to uh, become a surface warfare officer, you would have to apply yeah and um you know and if you if you met the qualifications, so like me, if you weren't you know, a lot of those folks wind up there because they're colorblind right? <laughs> like okay, <me>. sure. <laughs> I just decided uh not to get my commission. Uh, and I always thought about that, you know, years later, uh, when you, when you think about the pay differential and all that other stuff, but I think I made the right choices with my career. Sure. But when I took the officer's exam and whatnot, and they're like, well, you know, you could go supply logistics, supply chain and, um, and all that. And I was like, wow, I kind of do that in the civilian world. I don't want to do it in the military. I wanted to (laughs) do something completely different. Of course I was younger then. I didn't think it through, but, um, yeah, you, you can, you can, you can switch, but I think as you get more senior, uh, I, I would say probably if you get to lieutenant, you're probably locked in. I'm not 100 percent sure, mm. um, but that, that's that's what happens a lot of times is, you know, you get down a career path and then it's tough to break in. Um, it's very tough to um, to be uh, a surface warfare officer to begin with, to, to kind of swap over. Mm. They're kind of known in the military for eating their young. They're very, very tough on each other when they're very young and getting their qualifications uh, and it can be very political, uh, so a lot of people really don't even want that world. But it's it's a tough world to get into.
0: It probably probably take a little more than a couple sessions in the holodeck to to get that.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. You'd have to go back to school. You, there's a there's a surface warfare school in uh, Newport, Rhode Island that you would have to attend. Uh, um, you have to get all your OJT back out to sea and all that stuff. And then, you know, there's there's no guarantee that that you'd make it across all those boards, but. Um, right. I don't want to make it sound like it's, you know, super elite or anything. It's not, but it is difficult and just like all things, it's tougher to do as you get older.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, everybody knows that O'Brien must suffer. Uh, as a character, we see him end up in some of the worst situations uh, that a Space Navy guy can get up to. And we specifically see him struggling with a PTSD in an episode like The Wounded, and with Depression and Suicidal Thoughts in Hard Time, the DS9 episode. And we know that since the TNG era, Federation ships, at least Galaxy Class 1s, have a counseling department that the crew has access to. But we don't often see personnel taking advantage of it on screen. And I know in our own world, counseling for Members of the military is recognized as an important issue, uh, helping them deal with uh, mental health issues.
1: It is, and it's uh, it's become much more acute. Uh, I would say over the last twenty years, mm-hmm. the um, the focus on, on on mental health and uh, ensuring the crew is getting the um, the attention and the focus they need yeah. uh, is critical. I I don't find it's it's not quite like you'd see in Star Trek uh, unless you're on a pretty large ship. So I think a galaxy class has a thousand people, you know, it's hard to believe, but uh, the older aircraft carriers still have upwards of 6,000 people on board. (laughs) So they, yeah. And and so they do have, um, you know, those kinds of medical services and those opportunities, what they do in smaller ships or in units like mine is they, They'll send folks to school. Um, uh, for instance, for a few years there, I was what they called the um, uh, the DAPA, the, the Drug and Alcohol Prevention uh, Administrator. And so, if, if somebody had a problem, you know, or noticed that somebody had a had a problem with drinking or whatnot, you know, we were trained on you know how to address it, how to find them help, all that other stuff. We weren't psychologists, as much as we were uh, identifying the problem, talking to the individual and then making recommendations up to um, you know a physician okay. or a counselor that this person needs help. Uh, but, you know, you have those people in the middle uh, in all units and on all smaller ships anyway mm-hmm. uh, that watch out for that. Uh, you know, our corpsmen, our, our medical folks, um, they are, there is nothing. And it's, I think it's, it's a big miss in Star Trek. Um, I really do uh, because there, the, the, the folks that, um, actually, go on missions and um, and do uh, you know, the corpsmen in the group that 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 deploy with the Marines that deploy on ships or whatnot. They are so highly trained and incredible. They are not doctors by any means, but my goodness, are they talented and, and can do wonders for folks. And that really isn't an element that you see at Star Trek at all. It's kind of like that that, that doesn't exist. Yeah, you know, they yeah. have doctors and nurses, but no corpsmen. Yeah. Uh, and and to me, uh, you know, those folks. They do a lot of that too, so they'll they'll go through quite a lot more training. Um, like I said, they're they're so well rounded, not only on the medical side but on the mental health side. Yeah, uh, it, it's amazing what some of these uh, corpsman chiefs uh, and senior enlisted folks can do. They they are very very talented people.
0: I think that treatment for obviously you know PSD, uh, PTSD would be a big one. Um, we see how deeply everyone's sure. affected. You know, during the Dominion War. Also, just being out in the middle of space, you know, with just a couple people being alone would would be something that I think people would have to deal with. You know, something that we don't tend to see on screen uh, is Starfleet personnel readjusting to civilian life. Uh, You know, we don't actually see a lot of civilian life in the franchise period um, because the show is set in a military environment. But... And as you mentioned before, nobody ever seems to retire or muster out or anything like that. They're just on these ships forever. Uh, I'd have to imagine yeah. it would be hard to get home and remind yourself that you, you don't have to worry about getting turned into a crystal or being attacked by a neural parasite or something like that.
1: <laughs> well, you know, that's, that, that's interesting you say that. There's, there's a couple of things that, that go on today, which, which was fascinating to me to, to kind of learn and study and, and even address. Was that uh, you know there, there are folks out there that um, once they deploy they they constantly want to keep deploying okay. um, it It's not all that uncommon, and there's different reasons for it uh, for, especially for folks that uh, are in the reserves or or others that are constantly looking for that adrenaline rush. Um, it's very, very hard because uh, what you just said actually aligns brilliantly if you think about it. You know, as a, as a fairly young kid, um, or even any age for that matter, um, the accountability and responsibility that you have uh, when you're deployed is tenfold most anything you're going to find in the civilian world. You know, let's take first responders and police officers and all that. You know, yeah. there's there's that. I don't want to you know, I don't want to say that they don't deal with incredible things. They sure. do. Yeah. Um, but uh, but for the most part, you know, if if you're a, a postal worker, for example, and or, um, you know, a mechanic or whatnot. And the next thing you know, you're in charge of, you know, millions of dollars worth of equipment, uh, a <laughs> yeah. company or, you know, a, a detachment of boats or whatever it is um there's nothing that really equates to that in the civilian world and so what we started to see was people constantly uh the, and these are people that have families kids or whatnot um become addicted to to the deployment aspect of it because um their own self-worth seems to go up you know tenfold hmm. you know a lot of it's in, in their heads, but it's it's an incredible issue that we started to see i was i was speaking one time to he was an admiral um, he was a um, he was a medical doctor, uh, and and, uh, and it was it was actually a question that I had because I started seeing people from my own units deploy with other units, and I kept saying this cannot be healthy. But the military wasn't doing much to stop it at the time because they needed the people to keep going. Yeah. Um, and it, what it turns out to be is the lack of assistance for or at the time anyway, or acknowledgement that uh, it isn't just PTSD, which. Uh, you know, people that are dealing with the stresses from what they've seen and what they've dealt with and that loneliness because you can't find people that can relate to it. They're just, yeah. you know, it's less than 1% of the population of the U.S. has ever served in the service. Yeah. So think about that, right? I mean, it's, it's tough to find folks uh, that can relate. And even out of that 1%, it's even uh, a much smaller percent that have actually been involved in combat. And it doesn't necessarily have to be combat either. I mean... You know there are horrific accidents that occur in training, and things that you would never or very rarely see uh, in the civilian world. I have to deal with. Mm. So I think um, it's 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 an acute issue, and uh, the suicide rates. You know, it's 22 per day wow. in the United States. 22 veterans a day kill themselves. And uh, you know, it's it's. So we're talking about this very very heavy subject. But when you when you move that over into the Star Trek realm, I think there's a couple of things that. Uh, I guess in my head cannon um, that they would have to do before they would ever deploy on a starship. Uh, so in today's Navy, if you wanted to serve aboard a submarine, there is a, a, a huge battery of psychological testing and schooling that you have to go through okay. uh, before they would let you serve on a submarine. Interesting. Uh, because you're, you know, they, they say it's a 300-foot uh, sewer pipe that sinks on purpose. <laughs> yes. <right>. And <laughs> dealing with that psychologically. That's tough. I mean, yeah. you're, you, you're definitely going to be in some real small spaces. Um, your survivability rate, if something goes wrong, is pretty low. Um, you know, fortunately, they're engineered almost to perfection. You know, yeah. accidents still happen, but it's, it's incredible when you think of the accident rate and how, how low it is. Um, but, but dealing with that um, and, and, and being cut off, I mean, literally in a submarine, you are cut off, yeah. you know, for months at a time. Uh, and, and so it takes, um, you know, special characteristics and, and people have to be really t- trained well and they have to have the right, um, mindset and psyche to deal with it. And that's how I kind of always had it in my head for folks in Starfleet, mm-hmm. uh, that they have to go through, um, you know, a lot of batteries of tasks to understand that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how big that ship is. It gets very small in about two weeks. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you, you you are Holodex really. All no, the decks are no,
2: yeah.
1: All the decks are no. So, I, and so that, that was the element of, um, of, of the next generation. It was the only element of the next generation that I really hated was this whole idea of bringing families on board Yeah. Uh, because I, I always looked at that. That is some form of abuse. I mean, that is just, <laughs> you know, not only are you on the front lines if something goes wrong and you might not have time to move everybody and separate the ship and so forth, as we saw with the Yamato. Right. I mean, there was a thousand men, women, children, you know, just obliterated because they, they put families in a, Uh, extremely dangerous situation, even in the best and most peaceful times. Uh, So it kind of blew away my theory when they did that. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I would assume that that, that's what a lot of the training in the Academy is about is just understanding what the rigors of space. And you, you see it in star Trek beyond you, you really start to see, you know, the crew, the people that it's, it's getting to them. They've been gone far too long. They needed a break. And, um, Uh, I think that made that extremely realistic.
0: Yeah, other than the oversight of having families on a a Galaxy-class ship, hopefully in the future um, the awareness of issues like that is so high and the amount of tools and therapies available to, uh, to Federation counselors would be robust enough that, that we can get that number uh, way, way down.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the, the concept at first when I you know, a counselor on a ship or whatever, and you're, you're thinking of, of the bravado and all this stuff of serving and, and whatnot, you know, to me at first, it's like, well, this is a, why are they going in this direction? But the more you think about it, you realize how important uh, it would be yeah. to have trained counselor, counselors actually on a ship yeah, versus right. just one right. uh, in, in dealing with it. Yeah, It actually makes an awful lot of sense. Um, uh, but just like in, in the real fleet where you do have doctors and counselors and all that stuff, I don't think you'd ever, ever once see them on the bridge.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. They had a lot of seats they had to fill there on the, on the Enterprise-D bridge. So um, it's comfortable. Yeah, sure. They're nice seats too. I'm surprised that we don't see the holodeck being used more as a therapeutic tool. Uh, we see Nog spend his medical leave in Vic's casino uh, when he's just trying to detach from the issues that he's experiencing. But everybody on the mm-hmm. station, including his care provider uh, Ezri, sees it as kind of a weird thing. And I would think that that would be there would be uh, plenty of therapeutic uses for the holodeck.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think it, it rides that line between therapeutic and addiction, and mm, also yeah, yeah. the um, uh, the big swing back into reality when you come out of it if you use it too much. I, I think the uh, it, you know it, it's kind of like that that everything in moderation, you yeah.
2: Know? Right. Because
1: if if you go into the holodeck and you're and you're with your family, even if you know it's there's something registering your brain that this this still isn't real, and then when you the second you come out of it, it's like wow, that must be a little bit of shock and awe i think yeah. that uh it's it it could be used i think you're absolutely right uh for all the right reasons therapeutically um you know whether which you know which is why we watch movies which is why we watch star trek <laughs> right. to get away from it yeah. all and, and and you love that uh, that little dose of just being able to shut things down and and live in another world so yeah. i I do believe that the, the holodeck in many ways is the is the movie theater and TV show of the future. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, having... you just you don't see it. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: They're having movie night on the NX-01. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, I'd be I'd be watching The Office in there all the time. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> yeah, They never watch TV shows, yeah. Um I uh, because we spend so much time in Starfleet in the military in uh these Trek shows, uh we don't often see civilian life, uh at least not Federation civilians. And that's changing now with shows like Star Trek Picard. But I wonder about the relationship between Starfleet and the Federation citizenry in the future. You know, we see in Star Trek II uh, in the 23rd century that Carol and David Marcus, uh, who are civilian scientists, are very concerned about their work being appropriated by the military. Um, This is, of course, in the more kind of frontier TOS era. And we see the concerns of Earth citizens uh, about being having federation officers on the streets uh in the d s nine episodes home front and Paradise Lost when admiral layton is is doing his uh, attempted coup thing, but other than that there we don't see a lot of interaction between um the populace and and military uh personnel and I'm wondering if the distrust of the military that the Marcuses feel would exist still in the in the twenty fourth century
1: it's a it's a it's a fair question it's you know because um Star Trek kind of pivots between uh, exploration and military, mm-hmm. you know, I think that uh, the respect for folks in Starfleet, you would think, would be pretty high. Yeah. Um, I think it's when the mission changes that, that people get a, a, a little nervous. But, you know, it, it's funny. It's, um, you know, if, if you think about it, in the 60s and 70s, and, and even when I enlisted in the early 80s, uh, there wasn't a lot of love given to the military at all. In yeah. fact, uh, when I was on leave, uh, especially in Pensacola and other easier areas which were more military friendly than others the military town or whatever right they still were like you can 't wear your uniform outside the base huh. I mean they were accidentally, they told you not to do it um i, I you know to me it was like wow yeah, you know and, and i and I understood kind of where you know, the premise of what happened after Vietnam and all that other stuff. And, of course, you know, bl- blaming the folks or the draftees that had nothing to do with the <laughs> politics involved, I right. thought was pretty horrific. Right. But you've seen that completely turn around now. I mean, it's a it's a different world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's its almost kind of. Um, you know, I, I'm actually a little embarrassed sometimes. You know, well, thank you for your service. I don't really know what to say because to me, it's always been an honor to serve, but I appreciate it. Sure. <laughs> um, and and I would assume that it would be the same for for Starfleet. But you're right; they they never really touched much about it at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in in the shows, and I and I'm assuming because it's it's very difficult to to bridge. We all know why things changed on Earth, uh, and we have bits and pieces as to the to the events that occurred that allowed Earth to evolve, but we never saw how it evolved, and so trying to get back into it or, or open that can of worms, I think it can can be tricky at times, you know. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at if you look at Picard, uh, the new show, uh, I mean. It's it's so different. I mean, it's not the utopia we thought, right? There's money. There's there's bribing. There's this. There's. That. I mean, it's almost like whoa. I mean, did they did they lose the formula? I
0: couldn't. You know, it's just different. A lot of their depiction of Starfleet officers in Picard so far has been not the uh, you know square jawed heroes that we've seen in a series' past. They've been menials that you know it's it's like an office job it's it's sort of boring and i'm sure that's just the flavor that they want to give this particular wedge of the uh of the star trek pie but yeah it's it's a lot different than uh we've seen previously
1: yeah yeah they, they it's changed a bit and um, you know it'll be interesting to see if um if they if they try to correlate it all back together or not but um You know, but obviously, I think that uh, when you when you think of kids, uh, you you think of the Wesley character, and of course, his dad was an officer, his his mother's an officer, or whatever. But I mean, he just thinks being a starfleet officer is it, and so you know uh, and it's very elite and it's very difficult to obtain so they make you think you know i mean he's he's a childhood genius and doesn't pass the first test and it's like so is everybody you know smarter than wesley that got into the service it's crazy yeah um but it's but i'm just saying from an elite point of view it's considered a pretty big deal so i guess there's a, a fair amount of reverence for for starfleet and for what they do and you know even when um you know, they, they, they were talking about interview before the Picard interview and they run through his biography, you know, he was pretty well known and pretty famous. You get the same gist Yeah. for so that's what, what, what it was like for captain Kirk and for others, you know, that, that they were all kind of looked up as heroes.
0: Yeah. And it's a pretty shiny, happy future for the most part too. So, uh, you know, hopefully, um, people, I mean, they still have, the military still has to do the kind of grunt work and, uh, the sort of unfortunate things that they have to do sometimes, but it's sort of an age of heroes and I'm sure that people um, would respect the military. We, sometimes we see in shows like TNG, they'll go into a seedy bar, which is uh, presumably not necessarily within the borders of the Federation. And you'll get that sort of, Oh, get out of here, Starfleet. you see that Starfleet uniform. And they they get a little disrespect uh, in areas like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I guess that that exists everywhere in some places,
0: uh, no matter where you go. You know,
1: if you, if you walk in as a police officer. Or For sure. <laughs> a yeah, tailor, maybe that's kind a of what it is. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're not, yeah, not going to be too welcome here. I I remember when I turned 21, my friend, as I told you, Senior Chief O'Brien, he thought it would be fun for me to have my first legal drink in my dress blues in Harvard Square and Cambridge, Mass. Oh, and, um, that wasn't the best idea. It really wasn't the best idea. So, you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, you know, but it was just like, you want to talk about feeling like a fish out of water, but it yeah. was. It was you know, at that time and in that city, that is not where you would normally see you know military folks walking around. Yeah, but it was uh, it was interesting. Yeah,
0: that's that that'd be a great uh, premise for a film. You know, he was 21, and he was gonna have his first drink, and so they went into Cambridge Bar to get a drink, right. <laughs> and things just went from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today, Ken. This has been great. Uh, And this is a a fascinating subject. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of it. We'll have to have you on again to talk more about it. Oh, yeah. I'd I'd love
1: to. I'd love to talk about the officer rank structure and all this stuff and the parallels and the differences and so forth. uh, It it is pretty interesting. So, yeah, anytime. I'd love to.
0: Awesome. Well, let people know where they can find you online.
1: Well, you can find me on Twitter at uh, BostonSCPO. Uh, You know, as as you mentioned at the beginning, and thank you for that very nice introduction, by the way. That was incredibly thorough. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm still podcasting. I, I kind of switched over to, you know, just talking about veterans and veterans experiences and giving them uh, a voice out there to tell their stories. And this is General, uh, quarters. Uh, general quarters. Yeah, yeah. General Quarters. It, it was a, something I, I started a, a little over a year and a half ago. And my, my work-life balance has just been completely out of balance. Uh, <laughs> but um, with with Standard Orbit now over for me anyway, mm-hmm. uh, it's given me a, a better opportunity to kind of to focus there for a bit. Yeah, that, that's where you can find me now as General Porter's UFP. But, uh, you know, I'm all around Facebook and
0: whatnot. All right. Well, thanks again.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Hi, I'm Mikan Hana. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay, every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the sailor warrior of love and justice, Sailor Moon. All right, now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. the ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prism power make up a new episode. Better or netshots? Studio Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers.